Welcome to Armchair Justice, the podcast where we take a shallow dive into the world of the Supreme Court. This is the legal podcast for people who didn't study Latin in college. I'm your host, James Opworth. I'm not a lawyer, but my co-hosts, Micah Chetta and Gar- John Garner, are. Today, we'll be discussing whatever we jolly well please. Before we begin, I want to remind you that this is an educational podcast only. We are only offering our opinion and not legal advice. The individual facts of each case can differ dramatically and cannot be covered in a short-form podcast. If you say, think something we say is relevant to your legal situation, we encourage you to seek the advice of a licensed attorney. With that out of the way, it is time to tell you our opinions, our full opinions, and nothing but our opinions. Hello, guys. It's been... Uh... Quite the uh, quite the week. We're looking forward to Thanksgiving and some uh, some turkey. Uh, we will probably all of us right are going to be eating turkey. Um, so tradition is safe with 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 your favorite podcast hosts. Uh, but this week, you know, it's our seventh podcast, and um, we thought we would do something a little different. You know, the the Bible says about six days you shall labor and do all your work, uh, and the seventh is the Sabbath. Well, we're taking that principle and saying the seventh, seventh uh, podcast we want to take and just kind of talk to each other, talk to you guys, give you some of our opinions, some of our ideas and cut loose a little bit. So you get to know better where we come from, what our, uh, our, our ideology is, and you can temper maybe later episodes or former episodes with that idea of what our, uh, belief systems is. But also I think there's a number of things that we see which don't rise to the level of reportability on this podcast that we wouldn't do a whole episode on, but we want to talk through some of these legal implications, some of these legal things that are happening in our lives, um, some things that we're interested in that we're watching. I think on that note, you know, one of the things that we're looking at recently is is these uh, coronavirus orders, right? The mandates, whether it be no personal gatherings of more than 10 people. Um, and we thought it would be a good idea to share with you guys kind of the background, the backdrop, how each individual state, this is all, right, as, as of right now, a state-led effort, each state is different, but how this gets decided legally why a state governor mm-hmm can make these changes and kind of what are the broader implications of the changes, um, whether they will stand up in court, that type of question. Um, So I know in Ohio, recently the governor came out with an advisory that said they would like to limit gatherings to no more than 10 people, public or private, Um, that the mask mandate, they, they started a curfew after 10 p.m., everyone had to go home um, you know, but a lot of these things are, again, an advisory statement, so it's not actually even law. And I don't know, uh, John, Mike, one of you guys could tell me what South Carolina has they put in any new restrictions recently? Uh, I got to tell you, life life in South Carolina is pretty normal. I mean, uh, I know some of the cities, they have mask mandates and things like that, but um, I know the city of Columbia, for example, has a mandate for when you're entering a restaurant or any sort of building, you have to have it on. Uh, but then when you sit down, you got to take it off. And I, 
you'll have to excuse me just for a moment. I had a friend of mine tell me a good joke about this. And he's like, it's kind of like having a, a P section of the swimming pool. You know, one, once, once the cat's out of the bag, you know, the germs are in the air. There's not much you can do. And, um, so it's kind of interesting when you, you know, enter the restaurant, everybody's very conscientious about having their mask on and then they sit down and start eating and, you know, don't put it back on. So all I'll say is at least it wasn't a chicken joke. We, we can be grateful <laughs> about that. Um, well, it's interesting. Actually, in, in Charleston, uh, where I'm at, it, I was walking around downtown Um I just moved to Charleston, walking around downtown, and I thought that it was masks inside and masks outside was not required. I, I didn't know. I, I didn't look at the orders, um, and this taught me a lesson about needing to look up these kind of things. But I was walking past a certain plaza area, and there were people holding up signs in protest of masks. I was like, well, that's weird. And then there were eight police cars lined up near that plaza and as i walk by one of the people holding you know with the protest group looks at me and says good for you for violating the mass mandate that a way to stand up for your liberties and i was like what <laughs> oh, uh, this was not intentional to make a statement or anything but uh, all that to say is you know there are certain police powers that the state has and there's emergency powers that the governor has um, but we have to remember we're in a democratic system. So in our constitution, state constitution, there are limitations on that, on the governor's power. So just because an emergency happens doesn't mean the governor can suddenly pass all of these mandates and requirements. There are certain constitutional state constitutional limitations in place. And those, um, when they've reached a certain point, kick in and hopefully the legislature then steps in and says, okay, we're going to pass a law dealing with these issues. Um, and recently I had someone contact me and ask me a question about their particular state. And I had to emphasize it's state specific. You know, you have 50 states making decisions on these issues, which is how it should be. And you know, I don't, I don't want to come across as argumentative towards uh, the president-elect, but pres uh, president-elect Joe Biden said he would pass a mandate or executive order. He can't do that. Um, to my knowledge, unless he has some part of the Constitution that he's pointing towards, he can't make a national mandate. It's state-specific, and each state has a prerogative and, a, and the right to determine how they'll enforce uh, the prohibitions or the ability to combat coronavirus with mass requirements. Yeah, and I should be, um, you know, upfront with everyone. I am personally, I work for a hospital system. I work on corona data analytics every day. Um, and I personally believe you should wear a mask. It, you know, the data is good. You don't know if you are, um, if you're sick until you get it. I had coronavirus. It was not great. Um, you know, it, it takes a little bit. You could be shedding the virus and getting other people infected before you even have symptoms. So wear a mask for everyone. I just want to say that yeah. personally, my belief. And um, actually I had a um, situation, James, in one sense where I had a potential exposure to someone who apparently had COVID. And so I immediately 
uh, when it got tested, right? Well, there's that time period actually where you need the virus will incubate. So some people um, make that mistake and go get tested immediately, right? And they think they're all good. Well, you have to be careful with that. So I actually got a second test a couple of days later just to confirm that I didn't have it. Thankfully, I didn't have it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I personally, for my own sake, at least, I hold to the belief that I would rather make sure that other people don't get sick because of me. But I'm also a very big believer on letting states decide and having the individual liberties of, of the American people make those decisions. So I, I think it's a real balance between having the wherewithal to love your neighbor and wear a mask as opposed to having a government system of, or a federal mandate making you do that kind of thing. I think yeah. it's a balance. What do you think, John? I think you want to comment here. Yeah. I, um, I think the, the, the key issue is the, the democratic nature of the mandate. And the, the fact is, I think where most of the Corona mandates fall short in my mind is that there's no time component to them. You know, there's no sense of, okay, we're going to do this for the next 15 days to slow the spread. I mean, I appreciate that that was at one point the, the sell to the American people, but then 15 days was like six months ago. And so <laughs> there, there's an issue here where, you know, we don't want to, you know, just become complacent with, um, a mandate that, you know, is unending. And James, out of curiosity, and John, I guess you can jump on this too. Where do you think the balance is between an emergency and using an emergency to violate rights? And I, I think, you know, one concern as Americans and in general, we want to consider is, how we react in these situations can also affect other situations where rights may, um, you know, we might be willing to put aside certain rights for protections. How do we balance that as an American citizen going forward? You know, when the next major natural disaster happens or pandemic or whatever, um, should we react in this way? Should we be so quick to be willing to put aside certain rights? Maybe should we be even more efficient at putting aside certain rights for the greater good in one sense? Where, where do you think that balance is in the American people's mind? So at least from my perspective, and I, you know, this is some of my study in law, whatever, uh, what I've learned is one of the key components to when the government has to put over your rights is this idea of, um, this idea of overwhelming government interest. Um, it has to be a public, you know, a publicly in the public's interest and, a, and overwhelmingly in the public's interest to amend your rights. That's the first step. The second step, it has to be based on some sort of reality. Um, at this point, we've studied the virus. We, we, there's still tons we don't know about the virus, but we got a we got a much better handle on the virus. And we, we know protocols that work. So, you know, in some of these orders I've seen, the protocols that they say you can't do something, let's say out in Nevada, for instance, you can't, churches are limited to 50 people. Casinos are limited to half their, half their, their normal capacity. Um, right, and it's like, 
the churches actually could be safer than the casino um, or the bowling alley or whatever. They can actually make it much safer and they and it's been proven. And I don't think the government has any right to say uh, to, to amend one right, especially a stated right, such as you can go to church, the first, the first amendment freedom of exercise of religion in order to, you know, when they know that when they have protocols, they say other protocols are just as good. That's one. So first I said, you know, overwhelming government interest. The second thing I said is, um, that our government is that, you know, there it's backed by science, backed by data of some sort. Right. I think the third important thing is that it is limited. Like you cannot permanently take away the rights. This is what happens in in South American and African and Balkan states, right? They declare some state of emergency, and the president, prime minister, whatever, never stops the emergency. The emergency goes on forever. And you know, because they realize that's how I get all the power. And they stay in power, legally speaking. That's how they legally justify state and power. The emergency is still ongoing. I'm not saying, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that even the worst of the worst, like, you know, uh, governors here in the state of, in the state of whatever, you know, in, in the United States are going to try to make things illegal or, you know, or try to seize power permanently. I'm not, I'm not on board of that. Even in Michigan, I don't think that's happening or in California or in New York, right? But on the uh, on the flip side, I do believe it'd be, it'd be nice to have it limited. Uh, the government cannot permanently take away your rights. And the third thing is it needs to be specific. Um, I am kind of disturbed that the government can blanketly say, and this is, I like, love your guys' opinion on this. The government can blanket said everyone has to stay at home. Like we know the government can say, and emergency powers usually are addressed for this, like, you specifically are in the, the path of, of the hurricane. You must evacuate, right? You have a, you are in the eye of the storm. You got to get out. That's just period. Because you're, you, you know, danger and wherever else. The government can say, you have COVID, you stay home. Legally enforce, forcible action. These are all things settled law. Uh, I don't know what cases, the case citation, but these are settled law. But to say you may have COVID, you have a whatever the percent chance is of having COVID because that's the baseline chance. We have no reason to suspect you have, but you know, it spreads so much. And therefore, you must stay in quarantine. For me, that starts infringing on those rights as a person. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that I don't know where the where the level is. I'm just saying it's legally shaky to start implementing wide bans. You know, especially if if I'm a, a restaurant owner, and you and you're saying you're closed. Like, at some point, I need to know how long am I closed. I need to know, you know, uh, what's the terms and. Eventually, if you just say you're closed indefinitely, like the American people are smart, generally speaking, even the ones that voted for Biden, generally smart. Uh, <laughs> no, a lot of the, 
that's a joke, obviously. Um, <laughs> I love the caveat. Even the ones. Even, even the ones. Um, but, you know, my, my take is at some point you have to just trust that the American people will do what's best for themselves. And by the way, I'm all for like hospitals saying we're only allowing so many visitors. I'm all for nursing homes saying we are going to protect our people by not having any visitors. That's totally different. That's totally different. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd throw in two things here in the pot just to consider. And the first one is, is what's really helpful and, and I, I think we do this a lot on this podcast is when we talk about as you rightly pointed out, a compelling government interest or the overwhelming government interest. I've found it important to break down what does it mean for a government to have an interest, right? In some sense, if you don't really think about it, it, it sounds like this abstract entity that is sort of in this defensive posture. You know, it's some like military-esque protect the homeland keep everyone safe make sure laws are going on and it, it has a, that interest which those are all legitimate things but it's important that it it isn't purely that abstract interest and that we as a people understand that the power of the government is with us with the individuals with the citizens and it's so when we're trying to understand what is a compelling interest, well, we look to each other and we go, what, what, what do we think is a, is a compelling interest? What are we willing to give up and, and consent to? And I think what, what I don't see is a lot of that conversation happening in, in light of these COVID restrictions. And I think what we're beginning to see with the second wave of restrictions being set in and people are going, no, <laughs> I'm fed up. I, we're not doing this again. I did it one time. I lost my business. You know, my grandmom had to die alone in the hospital. I couldn't be with my wife who had our first trial or our first child, you know, things like this. And, and people are going, I'm not willing to give up those freedoms. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how states navigate those discussions and invariably some are going to go one side and some will go the other. The, the second point that I'll, I'll go to real quick is um, we have to understand uh, as people what's within our control, right? I think in some sense, there's this way that we want to defer to the experts and come up with a solution to every huge problem in the world. And the question that I always want to ask is, is there anything, is there anything that we can't answer? You know, it, can, can we even get enough smart people in the room to figure out what is the proper response to COVID? You know, it, are there issues that are outside of mankind's ability to solve? And is endeavoring to solve them, even to step forward and try and solve them, beginning to relinquish freedoms, like where we we are saying, okay, 
yeah, we're just going to give it up to the scientists. We're just going to give it up to the learned elite who understand COVID and its interactions and things like this, as opposed to, hey, Jim down at the at the country store, let's talk about what we're willing to give up as opposed to, you know, what the scientists may advocate for. I'll just jump in two things. Um, first one, I think it's important to recognize for people listening, um, what we're presenting is our own personal opinions on this. So if you're like, oh, that's a, John said something about X, Y, and Z, and that's a legal mandate because he's a lawyer. Um, no, <laughs> back up. reason we're doing this is present pure opinion and be able to just talk this out and be able to discuss things. And secondly, James, you emphasized that. I think I emphasized that John we want the American people to be able to make the choices here because our constitution emphasizes that we, the people, as opposed to we, the government. And let me suggest, I think, uh, a way that I approach this, um, that maybe the, we, the people might want to consider handling this as just a practical, personal practice, if I can say it with all P's. Um, there's that concept of love your neighbor. And oftentimes we're so caught up in the day to day that we forget to love our neighbor. And for me, the reason I wear a mask, and I think it's good to wear a mask and advocate that we should wear a mask individually as a personal decision, is that I don't know who I'm standing beside, who I can affect, who might be uh, most vulnerable in that population. And so I try to wear a mask as best as I can. I'm not perfect. You'll sometimes see me without a mask. You can jump on my case for it. And you at times could be absolutely justified in getting upset at it. But remembering this concept of loving our neighbors, being gracious to those who may be weaker than we are or more vulnerable rather than we are. And that's, I think, going back to uh, being Americans and caring about our fellow citizens, why we would want to wear a mask. So when you're making that individual decision as an American citizen and considering what's my step, instead of having the government force it down on us, consider, okay, I'm going to make this decision and consider, you know what, maybe I'm just going to wear a mask because other people will be injured by it. And I don't want that to happen. And that's where I want this arena to take place. This discussion in the arena of the American people, as opposed to in the halls of bureaucrats. And I know that sounds like, you know, oh, the scary bureaucrats. No, but seriously, though, it's coming back to this idea of if we the people want to have the power and the right that was given to us by our founders, let's exercise it. Let's use it wisely with prudence. And that's kind of my two cents on it is, if we don't want government intrusion, then we need to make right decisions as American citizens and have that personal responsibility to love our neighbor and make sure we make decisions that is best for ourselves and for those who are more vulnerable than we are. Yeah, and I, and I would just add a couple, my, my two cents worth here at the end. And that is, first of all, echo exactly what Mike said, love thy neighbor. Um, what's the, the quote from... Mr. Smith goes to Washington, that iconic lost causes speech. And he says there, the only reason you would, you would fight for lost causes is because of one simple rule, love thy neighbor. And in a, and in a world full of hatred, a man who can live by that rule 
has a great deal of trust. That's the first thing I'd point out. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm a Christian. We're the three of us are Christians. I imagine most of our listening audience is um, at least ascribes to the Judeo-Christian values. So my first point I would like to make is that is the primary, you know, that is what Jesus pointed out as our primary relationship to other people. And that's the whole Good Samaritan proverb. And I would like to remind people the Good Samaritan is a Samaritan, someone who the Jews hated. And he helped the people who hated him because he recognized that the people who hated him were still his neighbor. We need to do that. We need to love our neighbors by wearing masks. The second thing in the spirit of Romans, right? I don't want to get too preachy here, but in the spirit of Romans, we need to obey our government. Um, I, I am not, you know, I don't know where the line is. This is a matter of personal uh, deciding where the governmental line of you've now intruded on my rights is. And I have a right to do X, Y, Z. That's a matter for personal interpretation. But as for me, I'm going to continue to obey the government. If my governor says mask up, I'm gonna mask up. I'm gonna go out and, and wear a mask. I'm already wearing a mask because I think it's the right thing to do. But uh, if he says no parties greater than 10 people, well, I don't like parties greater than 10 people anyways, except unless it's my family. But even without that, um, uh, I did grow up in a family of 10 people. So mom and dad, um, I'm glad COVID hit now instead of back when we were all living under the same roof because then it would have been, you know, by fiat illegal for us to to still be Which there. child would they have gotten rid of, James? <laughs> would it have been you? That's the question. You know, we're getting together for Thanksgiving. So we'll have stuff to talk about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but I, what I was saying is, in the government, as Christians, we have a duty to obey the government, I think. And it's and again, where is your personal liberty, and how do we balance that? Because we do have personal liberty that's been that, that God has granted us. But I think we have a duty. It's not too hard, you know. Put on a mask, stand six feet away from other people. Just do your duty. And I'd like to point out one more time, because I do work for a hospital, I do work in COVID. These are all my opinions, like Micah said. Um, I, am, I am not speaking for my employer. Um, I am not trying to make any type of, of statement there. Um, it is just my base of reading the news, looking at the numbers, you know, and following, you know, reading my Bible. Another piece of news that I think was interesting this week, um, in, is that Kyle Rittenhouse uh, has posted bail. And uh, for those who are unfamiliar, Kyle Rittenhouse was a teen who went to, from Illinois to, I forget what state. Wisconsin. Wisconsin, mm-hmm. from Illinois to Wisconsin. He had an AR-15. He was there to protect buildings that were being vandalized because the police weren't going to be able to protect them. Um, in the course of 
protecting said buildings, said property. He ends up shooting two people. He ends up being attacked, first of all, um, and then shooting two people. Um, he is then charged with being a minor in possession of a deadly weapon, which is a Wisconsin law that says, you know, unless you're, it, it says what it says, right? You know, if you're under 18 and unsupervised, you can't have a gun is the idea. Um, and he, he now has posted a $2 million bail um, and is going to go to court. And I just want to get your guys' opinion on that whole situation. Like, it's a, first of all, it's a terrible situation that two people had to die. It's legally complicated, I think. And of course, this deals with state law and everything else. And I know that you guys are not experts in the laws of Wisconsin and the extradition treaties between the states. But um, I'm just interested in, in hearing your guys' kind of gut take on whether Kyle will win his case saying it was self-defense, whether he had a right to bear an arm there and whether the whether he's going to or whether he's going to go to jail um and be be locked up for for potentially murder yeah so uh lots of lots of interesting issues with that case uh i think first and foremost i think it's a tragedy on at everyone's front kyle's front the town of Kenosha that was looted and burned and businesses destroyed the two uh, gentlemen whose lives were killed, you know, lost and the individual who was seriously injured. Um, you have a lot of poor decision-making by all the actors involved. Um, I think, you know, some, someone who has respect for the second amendment, it, it's a, an unfortunate thing that such a young child is out there having to exercise his second amendment right you know in some effort of policing his area i mean this this should be a grave concern um the second thing that i would mention is there is a very interesting and i think worrisome issue about Kyle Rittenhouse's attorney being censored from social media and his ability to even talk about his client's case on social media uh, as most of the social media companies like Facebook and Twitter were um, blocking any mention of Kyle Rittenhouse uh, shortly after these events. You know, people were trying to post... Um, you know, fundraisers and things like this for his attorney's fees and such. And these social media accounts, because they wanted to can the story, were scrubbing uh, these posts, which is something that we should be concerned of. I mean, this, this took money out of his legal defense, period. You know, you consider the fundraising uh, timeline, you know, shortly after this event, this is where it's on most people's minds. It's when most people are going to be interested in giving money and they weren't able to reach the same audiences. This, I would think, should concern someone. And lastly, uh, having reviewed the footage, um, if this isn't self-defense, then we don't have self-defense. 
uh, at least in Wisconsin. Um, and I think this is one of those things where, um, thankfully, it's not up to me whether or not it was self-defense. Thankfully, we have the right by jury, trial by jury. And so it's, it, it's not my decision to make and that there will be 12 individuals who will review the video, all of the evidence presented in court, and make that determination one way or the other. Uh, and I think, you know, we rest easy on uh, John Adams' quote where he says, you know, uh, the jury is the lungs of liberty. And this is really the, the, where we get to see it is in this case where we go, okay, is this self-defense? But what do you think, Micah? Yeah, so there are, you know, you can take this very broadly and philosophically, or you can make this very cut and dry and say what you think is there. And I'm going to take just one approach that I think is necessary to bring out. And that is the process of an arrest, the bail process, hearings, selection of jury, preparation by the defense and the prosecution is an intentional process that is done. The judge over the internet, over social media, is not an intentional process that is done. It is quick. It is fast. People who are not experts in the field make judgments and calls that are highly incorrect and not their place to make. And I had an opportunity when I was in law school to be able to work with um, the prosecution at an attorney general's office and at a local solicitor's office and got to work in that area for about two years almost and got to see fantastic attorneys on defense and prosecution, got to see wonderful officers. I got to see um, heartbreaking situations of families that were affected. And what I came to the conclusion is that there are individuals in our system who work day in and day out to represent clients or to represent the state and to come out to the best outcome that they're possibly capable of doing. And what I also know is that there are people on social media who have no interest in the clients and only want the outcome that they, without having the expertise needed, they believe is correct. And I think what typifies this is today I was um, in a particular area of my city and I saw this individual screaming at a police officer and the individual had been called by uh, on by the police because they were causing a disturbance and the police officer was there trying to mediate the situation. And this person walked by me and said, I don't know whether the call the and the person who the officer is talking to to, uh, to blame her or whether to blame the police officer, which she then called a derogatory term. And it amazed me how she suddenly categorized two individuals into two groups with slurs and political statements behind those slurs. And it just really goes to this concept of social media is not the place to make these judgments. So to Kyle Rittenhouse, he deserves a good attorney who can advocate for his position where that video evidence can be presented to a jury and those members of the jury hopefully 
will be unbiased and will be able to examine the facts as they are presented. That, that prosecution, hopefully untainted by politics, will present its best case forward and be able to prosecute the case as best as it can. And what do I think with the specific scenario that we have here? I think it's a travesty of what's happening because we have politics, social media, infiltrating this scenario and it shouldn't, it should stay out and we should let the processes of the justice system operate in the way it should. You're never gonna get a, always 100% correct, but I guarantee you, you'll be batting at a lesser percentage if you get politics and social media involved. So again, I said I, you can either answer this really philosophically or cut and dry. I went more towards the philosophical. And the reason I went that way is because I'm not in a place to understand Wisconsin law in depth. I don't know all the facts of the case. And so I'm going to practice what I preach and say, you know what? I don't have a great opinion on this. And I hope the prosecutor and the defense counsel are going to present good cases and Kyle will be uh, either found correctly innocent or correctly guilty, according to the eyes of the state of Wisconsin. And if the people of Wisconsin feel like those are unjust outcomes, then they have the democratic process to change the law. You, you know, there's something in my, you know, just with this and the COVID discussion, um, something I like, I like to highlight, um, and it's kind of been a theme, is that we are a federal government system. Federalism means that you have one overarching national government supported by several regional governments, local governments. And really, if Seattle uh, wants to pass a $15 an hour minimum wage, why is that my issue? That's Seattle's issue. In fact, it's probably good that they do that. And that way we can see what happens in a natural experiment when they do that. And we can see if this would actually help or if it would implode the economy. That's one thing. We have a, we do have a, you know, when it comes down to COVID restrictions, the best person to make that call is your local government. You know, the people who are, I deal with this on a daily basis with the data I see, you know, I can see down to the block level. I can see down to the individual case, you know, um, now I'm not in any way saying I should make decisions about who should and who should, but on that level, you can actually make a lot better decisions. Do we need a mask mandate? Do we need to close down the restaurants in this area? Because we're seeing way too many cases that may be the case. But then you have a rural county and it's like there's three cases in the entire county well probably not that anymore but you know there's there's been 12 cases all year in this rural county like that county health department could probably make a better decision about what that county needs you may live in new york and have plenty of access to wi-fi or and so your school doesn't need to provide that when they close the schools you may live in the middle of midland ohio and have no wi-fi and so the school needs to figure out a way to get schools. We need to take separate approaches for separate places. That's the COVID thing. And as far as the state's rights and the state's guns and how they regulate guns and this and Kyle and House, like, yeah, that's a state's issue. Let the people of Wisconsin, let those 12 people see the tape. Let them make their determination. Because honestly, you know, and I've said this for years, 
12 people spending two weeks of reviewing every scrap of evidence beats 100 people spending 12 seconds watching a highly selective clip proving their point. You know, uh, I tend to trust juries. I tend to think that juries come out with reasonable analysis of the situation. I, that doesn't mean you can't win on appeal. The judge is wrong. I'm just kidding. Um, my lawyer friends are making faces at me. James, James, I want to just ask you a question here because um, I think it's good to spice up the discussion a bit. Um, John and I are cracking up at juries because sometimes juries come up with the wackiest of decisions. I will say that. I've seen some pretty weird uh, decisions by juries. Um, but you mentioned that sometimes the local, gov the local government is the best place uh, for decision and policy decisions to be made. Um, where do you think, though, is the balance? And I know this is a discussion in and of itself, so you can be as brief or ignore my question, however you would like. Um, but where is the balance between allowing uh, individual uh, city or state make, to make a decision and making sure that individual and city or state doesn't go so far as to violate a right which our constitutional you know, our court system, maybe our federal court system come in and step in. So where's that balance between we need the bully federal government to come in and say, y'all need to calm down, or we don't want the bully federal government to come in and we want this, the local entity to be able to create rules that fit their area best. What's the balance sure. between those two well, tensions? I, I, I say the, the strict, the, not strict, the originalist position is the best position. An originalist position would say, let the let the let state and the let the, the role of the federal government is to step in here and say, there is an issue, stop it. When there is a clear rights violation, it's the role of the federal government to come in to your local place and say, stop it. That's wrong. That is, I think, a great use of the federal court system. A living constitutionalist would say, Actually, a great use of the, const of, of, the, of the court system is to say, is to not say your rights are being infringed, but to pass homogenous legislation across all places. In other words, in a, in a constructionist view, an originalist view, we, I would be fine with different legislation. You know, they're kind of being these, these geographical differences, as long as they don't violate your rights. And, and we're okay, we're more flexible with different ways. We recognize that a reasonable jury in Texas is going to find a whole bunch of things different about gun laws than a reasonable jury in New York. The reasonable person standard is different, right? So that's kind of my, my approach. A living constitutionalist would say they should be exactly equal, 100%, no change, no difference. And that, I think, is fraught with issues. Um, now for the, for the last little bit of this, this discussion, I know we've gone a little long, but I think it's been fun. I think, uh, I think it's been entertaining. Um, I want to ask a couple of things. I want to get both of you guys' opinion, uh, whether or not they should be reformed or not reformed and maybe like a two sentence blurb on what you think needs to happen. So um, let's start, start with, we talked about the Facebook, Twitter, shutting down the Kyle Rittenhouse um, fundraising. So section 230 
of the Telecommunications Act where they can do stuff like that. Does that need to be reformed or is that good? So uh, I can't speak on the Telecommunications Act. I don't know anything about it. I think one thing is uh, these companies are clearly publishers. They are they are selecting material uh, to either promote or demote on their platform. And then secondly, um, they social media companies have been doing the largest scale human subjects research um, that our country has ever seen and have not been regulated as such and need to be. People need to understand that they are doing the widest scale human subjects research that has ever been done in our country. Um, I'm just curious, Sean, could you quickly define what you mean by that last yeah. part? Yeah. So uh, I worked at University of Pennsylvania Hospital on, on a human subjects research protection board. And the point is, is that there are strict criteria of how to get human subjects research whenever you're trying to research humans and how they respond or how they differ or get any data from people uh, given the ways that it's been abused in the past and so the idea is is that if you're ever going to test humans psychology or medical experiments or whatever you're going to do you have to be reviewed and audited to a very very high degree and the point is, is social media companies test humans all the time by figuring out what they like, what they don't like, you know, what will draw their attention to their platforms, what won't. And they have run rampant without any sort of oversight or auditing, which uh, should be concerning. And I think we're beginning as a country to see the impact that this sort of unregulated uh tinkering with the minds of the American people is beginning to have. Yeah. And my only two cents on that is free market economics is a beautiful thing. And if a individual is frustrated at censorship by Twitter or Facebook or any other social media entity, please, for goodness gracious, start a new entity. And I know there's a lot of capital that has to go into that, but where there's demand, there should be supply. And one, I guess one area you can see it is this whole phenomenon of parlor. And I'm not getting a plug from them to say this, and I haven't started an account on them, but I kept seeing it all over uh, social media as people saying they're moving to parlor so they can get new, uh, you know, not be restricted. And I don't care which way you go on it, but what I think it is interesting is the if you allow free markets to work. Parlor comes up, people who are frustrated at the way Twitter and Facebook or whatever else are acting, they'll go to Parlor. The financial stability of Facebook and Twitter will go down and then they'll have to adjust or they'll lose business. And that's the whole point of our economic system is that consumers influence providers. And if providers think they can, to a certain degree, and they do influence consumers, but absolutely control consumers you have to consider then all right if you feel like they're overly 
um, dominating the consumer's life, you switch, you find a new product. And when that happens, there's going to be money being lost. So all that to say is if you're frustrated, find another outlet. Don't put your, you know, get rid of your Facebook account, get rid of your Twitter account. I don't care what you do with it, but if that frustrates you, then you actually can do something about it. Stop posting on Facebook how you hate how Facebook censors you because they'll probably censor it anyways. So if that's frustrating, start a new account somewhere else um, because that's what gets their attention the most. So the next question, kind of going off of that, uh, is Google's being sued by the uh, Federal Trade Commission. And the Federal Trade Commission is alleging that Google is a monopoly that they monopolize search terms and, you know, they have what 80%, 90% of the market for search terms is what the federal government alleges. So quick question is Google, do you think that Google is, uh, is it a monopoly? Does Google need to be regulated more? So do we need to reform how we regulate big tech essentially outside of section 230 just in general? Do we need to break up the bit, the big players? John. My, this is shooting from the hip. My general reaction is yes. Okay. Micah. Uh, regardless, I guess, of where I would want it to be. I think the writing on the wall is there. I think Congress is ready to get going on it. I think it's, it's coming soon where Google will get split up. I, I could be wrong about that, but there's so many avenues that that entity has kind of weaved its way through. And it may be before too long, I, I think that writing's on the wall. You're going to see something happening to make sure they don't get over overly broad with their uh, control. Okay. Yeah, I kind of think the same thing. It's writing's the wall. I think again, the whole psychological experimentation, they've done really well. And um, at some point, they're going to switch. So then this next question, um, another take going away from tech, let's go to this recent confirmation process of the Senate. And we saw how heated that kind of was that but the Kavanaugh one was even more heated. And the Gorsuch one was great. Should we reform the confirmation process? Should we make it like a, a private process or a written process where you just answer things in writing? Um, or is this great to have the political theater of having the justice sit down in front and answer questions? Hmm. I, uh, this is kind of a tough go. I, th I think if I could change the process, I'd go back to the majority uh, vote not the simple majority, but the two-thirds majority vote for confirmation. I think that was a poor choice uh, to go to 51 votes. As to the political theater, it is what it is. I I know that isn't very, uh, there's not meat, much meat to that, but uh, I think it's here to stay. Um, I think it should just be part of people's process of evaluating these politicians is do they ask them questions about their legal philosophy or are they there campaigning for their political, you know, for their next presidential race? 
Yeah, I, I, there's this quote, I, I believe, by Otto von Bismarck, and he was talking about, he said something like, laws are like sausages, it's better not to see them being made. And I, I kind of feel like we as American people are kind of sick and tired of seeing how justices are brought through the ringer. However, that being said, I want to change it. Um, I, I, I would love to go back to the two-thirds majority requirement for the cloture vote. I think that that ensures that poor choices, poor nominees won't get pushed through. But really what needs to be amended is the attitudes of the senators. Uh, it used to be, again, there was no controversy as to a nominee. And then suddenly we have controversy now where it is this knockout, drag out fight. And where we see that is the politicization. Politi uh, no, I can't say the term. Politicization. Thank you. Yeah, for some reason I can't say that right now. Um, but yeah, we see this happening and occurring. And that's why it's becoming more contentious because Congress is no longer that function of moving uh, policy through. So yeah, can we change the process? We could, but what really needs to change is the partisan atmosphere of the Senate. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. So who knows? Good luck. Good luck. I, and also I will say the Bismarck quote, I just wanted to quote it. It's a fantastic quote. <laughs> I don't know if it actually has anything to do with what I just said, but it's a good quote. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of tired of the political theater. But then again, I really loved it when Trey Gowdy was out there. That was great, great stuff. He didn't do it for the political theater, I don't believe. But it was fun to watch him bring some of those people through the ringer. Um, well, thank you guys. Thank you for, for uh, answering those questions. Um, it's been a lot of fun. We'll have to do this again sometime when the court is out of session, like it is this week. And we'll just have another... Uh, bonus episode of discourse a sabbath a sabbath episode <laughs> well thank you guys for listening to armchair justice it's truly been a privilege to have you as a listener if you've enjoyed our content so far we'd ask you that you subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're listening to leave us a comment and a review that help us out a lot John Gardner and Micah Chet are your co-hosts. The intro and exit music was Cat Searching for Truth by Matt Cave and Hot Butter Run. I'm James Abadoff, your host. I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>